Hey everyone, it's Jackie. Hope you're having a great day. Um, you know, I love to ennoble women, right? And one of the ways I do that is I help women who have the gift of preaching to develop their skill, find ways to use their skills. And I get in their corner and I cheer them on because, you know, like speaking on the sacred is really kind of scary. So what I wanted to do this morning before we enter into the conversation with Laura and Melissa on um, Rahab, the prostitute, uh, I wanted to mention a woman that has been a colleague of mine. I've known her for years. Her name is Kat Armstrong. And she just started a brand new podcast called The Holy Curiosity. And what I love about Kat is she is not only a really good Bible teacher, but she's a fierce advocate for women. And she's hoping through this podcast to spark holy curiosity in you Bible readers. Um, she's going to follow a person, a place, or thing in the Bible and, and kind of uh, help us appreciate the genius storytelling of God. Um, she's going to have people on her podcast like Dr. Lynn Kowick, who I was studying underneath at Northern, and Michelle Knight, and Nijay Gupta, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the first one out is me. Yeah, the first mini series is about the abuse of Dinah experienced in Genesis chapter 34. And I'm so proud to be the first guest speaker on Kat's new show, um, talking about the trip we took together on the Holy Land and studying women in the Bible. And so I would love for you to check out her new podcast that's coming out. Again, it's Holy Curiosity. I'll post in um, the link here, uh, the, the podcast link so that you can get to it. But be sure to follow her. She's worth listening to. But for today, who you're going to listen to right now is Melissa and Laura and me talking about Rahab the prostitute. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of The Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Okay, so welcome back. We are still in this series on the line of women in Jesus Christ. And uh, I think this week we're talking about Rahab with Melissa and Laura. Um, well, you preached on her, Laura. Tell, tell yes. us a little bit about this woman that we think we might know, but maybe we don't. Yes, so good. So what you probably know about Rahab is that she's a prostitute living mm -hmm. in the city of Jericho. And she protected the Israelite spies and was rescued from the destruction of Jericho with her family. And I mean, for most people, that's the end of it. Like, that's what they know. Um, but there's so much more going on in this story. Yeah. So I, I love because it's interesting. I've always wondered if Jesus were to have actually written the Bible, <laughs> would he have like um, written 
the tag of that as Rahab the prostitute, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm curious why that got put in there. Yeah. And when I hear, we, we let, let me say this, because you're going to show us a story that is much larger than, than her being a prostitute. But when I hear the word prostitute, some thoughts come to my mind, right? Yeah. I, I could go to the movie, uh, Julia, uh, what Julia Roberts? Yeah, Julia Roberts. Yeah, pretty woman, right? Like, yes. daintily dressed woman and hanging on a light pole. And I have this vision of prostitutes being hard-hearted and harsh and immoral. And um, I've come to see that differently, having worked with women who've been pulled out of sex trafficking, etc. That um, the now I ask the question: What happened to you? Mm. What happened to you? And I, I have to, I have to wonder. Like we know that she's a prostitute, and our thoughts around that are all the things that I just named. But if we asked what happened to you, we might have to wonder: um, Is it possible that she was one of the women that was given over to temple prostitution? Um, you know, there were girls that would be sacrificed, right? And they would go over and give their bodies as an act of worship to the gods and to satisfy the gods. And so is it possible that that's what happened to her? Or Jericho is a really small town. And um, I think it's like six miles in diameter. Is it possible that the king that we read about in that story saw this beautiful young Rahab hmm. and took her as one of his concubines or, you know, a weekend fling and... Once that happened, life was over for her, right? Yeah. And so we we might want to approach her even that terminology, asking the audience when they read that text to like reframe how you're thinking about a woman that's a prostitute and asking what happened to her. Yeah. We do know in antiquity women were married. And if they're not married, that left in a life of destitute or prostitution. Right. And so something has happened that's left her in a state that she had to maneuver to that profession to survive. Yeah. But that's not all we know about her, is it? <laughs> no, not even close. And I, I think a lot of it really does uh, rest on the way that you frame the story and the, the curiosity that you bring to the story, like what's happening. Um, and when, when I read it, you actually don't call her the prostitute right out. You don't no. you read her that way. You don't read the sentence that way. Mm -mm. You and, always and, heard it. And I was yeah. like, oh. like Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I thought, well, it's part of the text. It is in there. And so we need to name it. But at the same time, I don't want that to be her only identifying characteristic because I don't think it's true. Um, or I don't think it's the only thing that we need to recognize about Rahab. And isn't um, that true of us too? Yeah. Right? We have these negative things, right? Is that the only thing that identifies us? Mm -hmm. Should we be identified by that one thing only? Is that the full encompassing of who we are as humans? Yes. No. I think I think that's, we've got to ask those questions. So I, one of the things that I noticed in her story is, again, the agency that you see her use throughout the story. And I don't think I had ever picked up on this, but- the king's men come to her door looking for the spies and she lies to them. Meanwhile, she's hidden the spies. She gives directive to the king's men who are looking for the spies, tells them what to do. They obey her orders. It's surprising, isn't it? Which is surprising. Then she goes back upstairs. She has a conversation with the spies and she um, 
is reacting to the presence of the Israelites in her neighborhood um, and telling them all the people are afraid of your God. And the thing that jumped off the page to me as I was reading this story, there's a few short verses where she's having this conversation with the spies and she's talking about their God, but she's naming him Yahweh. And she uses the word Yahweh four different times when she's talking about their God. And what struck me is she knows God's name. She already has identified their God, Yahweh, as the God of heaven above and of all the earth below. It is this profound statement of faith that she is making. And she is asking that God to provide her with protection and protection for her whole family. And she expects that Israel's God will protect her, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. Um, so that that was that was kind of the angle that I came at it, that this is a woman who um, is risking everything to come under the protection of Israel's God. And um, out of all of her available God options, she has identified <laughs> the God. Audience, there was a lot of them, hundreds of them God options. Yes, yes. And she's chosen Israel's God um, to put her faith in. And she's she's taking dramatic risk in this story. And she's telling everyone what to do. Like she's not a shrinking violet where no. things are just happening to her. She is orchestrating the next steps and she's doing it out of expectation that God's going to meet her. So I, it was fascinating. It was fascinating to, to look at this story. Can I, can I say a couple things about that? Like when I studied Rahab, I noticed she says, I've heard of your God, right? And she lists two stories. She lists the story of the Red Sea and then the defeat of the Amorite Kings. And I looked up why those two stories, well, those two stories are 40 years apart. And I started thinking to myself, how did she hear God's name? She's in a, a what we would call, a, well, a non-God a non uh, God environment. What do you call those? Uh, I want to say- Pagan. A pagan. Thank you. My, I used to say I come from a pagan family and my mother would say, would you stop saying that? I'm talking about a literal sense, you know, <laughs> a literally biblical sense of it. But she didn't like the term. Um but she comes from a pagan environment. So where is she hearing God's name, right? And she's telling two stories that she heard, which were 40 years apart. And so I started thinking, okay, there were traveling merchants. She owned the inn, right? And that's where she got her second clientele, which her second business, the clientele for her second business, right? And so people would come to town and there's only one inn in the town. And she's, she's the one that owns it at that time. Most women ran inns. And I'm thinking she's having sex. I know I'm sorry, people out there listening, but there's a story in scripture. She's having sex with these traveling merchants and they're telling her these stories and they're not trying to save her. They're not trying to convert her. They're probably being very arrogant and pompous as they tell their wilds of their travel, you know, no intentions, but I can't figure out how else would she have heard? But I don't know what to do with the fact that the gospel can be even spread in those kinds of ways mm. that we would never imagine. Yeah. I don't even know what to do with that. Yeah. So and good. She, through those years says, ah, I've come to the conclusion. Yahweh is the one God. Mm -hmm. 
by men mm-hmm. taking advantage of her. Yeah. Yeah. It's so well, and it's and not only that, but that she is incorporated into the family of Israel and then becomes this figure. Um, the people are t- still telling her story generations removed and using her as an example of faithfulness. Mm-hmm. I think this is the part we are uncomfortable with some of these stories, but the the people of Israel um Probably, I, I just get the sense that they tell these stories as examples of faithfulness. They don't focus, I don't think, on the sexual immorality pieces that we find to be such hangups where we can't get past it. They tell these stories as Rahab was the mother of, you know, oh, um, Boaz, and Boaz became the father of uh, Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David. So they tell these stories as like, these are people we respect. These are people we look up to. They become sort of the royal family of Israel, and we're still stuck on her being a prostitute. Um, but God has incorporated her into Jesus's family line, and they look upon her as an example of faithfulness. Um, I didn't talk about this in the sermon, but the book of James in the New Testament, James is the brother of Jesus. They grew up together. They grew up hearing the same Bible stories together. And James talks about Rahab and her faithfulness. So I just, we've got to recover these stories because they are meant to be examples for us. And I love that idea of Jesus growing up in a household Uh, where Rahab, who was also his ancestor, was being brought out as an example of godly faithfulness. And we've lost some of that. And I think it's worth recovering. And she's in Hebrews too, right? Like she's in the list and and named as a prostitute, but like also faithful. Prostitute does not cancel out her faithfulness. So maybe, I mean, when I think about that, gosh, I think about some of the things I've done in my life pre-Christ and quite frankly, post-Christ. And I think mm-hmm. I probably need to hear that. Yeah. But some of the things I do in life doesn't cancel out faithfulness. Yeah. Um, because I, I do think we compartmentalize and we think, well, this, this excommunicates me or this disqualifies me. And I, I see this picture of this woman and I think, oh, I think God saw so much more about her. Than just that one aspect of her life, which quite frankly was probably done to her and put upon her. And she used what she had to not be um, a victim, but a survivor. Mm. Right. Yeah. And God says this woman's faithful and she's a survivor. I mean, she, you know, we have this picture of prostitutes being, um, unable to think and not really clear in life and foggy and, you know, lost and she's anything but, I mean, Laura, you talk about her bravery and her courageous and I mean, tell us a little more. (laughs) What do we need to know about her character? I, you know, when I was a kid and I heard this story, I think I, I, you know, when you think Sunday school, Laura was probably not being told that uh, Rahab was a prostitute. I think when I was a kid in Sunday school, they taught us that she was an innkeeper. Mm-hmm. And then as a kid, I remember being wrestling with the fact that she lied. Like the lying part was really disturbing to me that she was not telling the truth, but somehow 
it was okay. She was still rescued. God still <laughs> rescued her. And I had trouble putting those two ideas together, right? The lying and, and God somehow endorsing her. Um, there's so much more to this story. Um, but I, we, she's taking agency. She's taking action. She's lying to the king. Um, she is sending Sorry, the- You get killed for that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. She's, she's taking great risk. She's sending the king's men off on this wild goose chase. She's like, oh, I don't know. They were here, but now they're gone. Maybe if you hurry up, you can catch them. And she sends them off. Um, meanwhile, she is telling the spies how she's going to let them shimmy down her window and um, asks for their protection ask for God's protection of her family and organizes all of that, like makes plans. I mean, she is a woman, right? Like she is making <laughs> all of the plans. Reverse along covering, with yes, covering all the bases. But that, that concept of her, listen, any number of these were killable offenses, right? That's um, right. So she's taking all kinds of risk. And that was what I was struck by. She, she's not, leaving any other options open. It's either Yahweh, the God of Israel is going to come through for her and protect her or she's done. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I think that's what struck me is, is she is, she is fully intent on following God and, you know, there's not going to be any question at the end of the day, either God is God or God is not God and she's dead. Um, but she has put all of her trust in following the God of Israel. And I, I was just very struck by that and just thinking, this is not a quiet, retiring woman. Mm -hmm. She's not like reserving her words or her thoughts. She's not staying at home. She's, you know, um, not passive. She's not waiting for other people to take action on her behalf. She's just doing it yeah. um, because of her faith in God. And it's very directional. Um, but yeah, that, that idea of like, I think sometimes when we think about biblical womanhood, I'm really going to get myself in trouble here, Jackie, but I think <laughs> when, when we think about biblical womanhood, a lot of I, the ideas that come to mind are rooted more in Greco-Roman culture than they are the biblical story. Because what we have here is a woman that's active. She's not passive. Um, she is making choices and, and, and yeah, she's not quiet. She's directing the men on what to do. That's leading. Yeah. So leading. I just See, think that, if we want, yeah, go ahead, Melissa. I, but if I can just add, that's what stuck out to me the most when you were preaching, like she wasn't obeying these men, like she was pursuing Yahweh. They came, they weren't like, all right, woman, hide us, uh, find the plan out. And, and then we will like offer you safety. She was like, Go, go upstairs, go hide. I'm doing this. And like, she bartered for her safety later. Like it, it, that just really struck me that picture of like, oh, she's not just like, this is her story here. This is not the story of the spies, like navigating this. It, it really hit me what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. In fact, when she goes upstairs, you know, she hides them upstairs and it says underneath flax. So, you know, a lot of scholars think she actually ran three businesses. She ran the inn. She had a prostitution clientele and she probably made or at least dried flax for, uh, for, for clothing. 
this is a very industrious woman who who was probably handed some real trauma. Mm. She rose up and and, and actually she shows great strength here. Right. Like this is a woman who went, the world will not knock me down. I'm going to go after this. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm a survivor. She's a thriver. She's actually really shrewd. I mean, she sends those boys, which I just see these cute little Jewish boys who are so (laughs) innocent. Right. And they walk in and they know right away she's a prostitute and they probably turn bright red. I mean, no choice. (laughs) them is these cute little Jewish boys. Surely they knew they were supposed to be. (laughs) Don't you go to that prostitute's brothel. You know, so imagine their whole uncomfortableness with this, right? They're dependent on a prostitute for their lives, dependent upon her. And she knows this. She's got them. She's got them in a vice. So she sends them upstairs. They hide. She goes upstairs and she actually, the verbiage in that terminology where she negotiates with them is that she's forcing them into a contract, a legal binding contract. And she's basically saying I want you to promise, not with your words, but with your very lives, that you will save me and my family. Yeah. Which is fascinating, right? Like, because I have this picture of her not being, if you just hear Rahab the prostitute, you think um, rough, unloving, unkind. But we see her actually going after protecting her whole family. Yeah. And it's the word kindly, and it's actually the word hesed, which is a love that goes beyond what's expected out of someone. You know, it's, it's, it's very much what we're going to hear with Ruth, you know? Um, yeah. She's very multifaceted. Maybe we are too. Yes. Yeah. What I, would it be like if we could, as women and men, take, take us more holistically, even the bad parts, hmm. recognize that Tove and raw, good and bad exist within us, but they don't disqualify us. How, how would we be able to live more at ease hmm. and even feel like we could actually open our eyes and see the divine right in front of us that, that we could approach or that he or she is already right there? Yeah. So good. Wow. I think that idea of um, God meeting her, it, she just, like you're saying, she strikes me as a high capacity organizing woman um, that she's, she's managing all of these things and all of the people and um, that that is not an offense or an affront to God um, where I think in our, in so many of our contemporary churches, I think we look at women like this and that's not our conclusion, right? Like we're not saying, Oh, they're so godly. I, I don't know that, that, I, I think no, we either dominant or they're a bitch. Yes. Let me just right. say what we say about them. Yeah. Sorry for <laughs> ears out yeah. there. We've all had to hear it as pastors, female pastors. So welcome to Yes, her. like she's aggressive and domineering or whatever. Um, but this is this is literally an example of biblical womanhood. And I think we have to we have to wrestle with that. Yeah, and it yes, I think we're gonna see all of that kind of woman all over the scriptures. Once we start actually unfolding this, right. We're going to see mm-hmm. that over and over again. My, my daughter works with uh, migrants coming. She was in a shelter on the border of Guatemala and Mexico and migrants coming through. And then also worked here in Texas with um, immigrant women and children that had crossed the border. And, um, 
you know, it was fascinating because Americans kind of have this mentality that when somebody is vulnerable, um, that they are meek, weak, um, uh, sheepish, you know, broken. Um, but these women, um, they would come into my daughter's office because in the office they would have diapers and they would have clothes and they would have everything, you know, that, that, that the children would need now that they've gotten across the border because they come across with a bag, you know, and they would demand it. I mean, there was no like, can I please have, I'd really like what my daughter needs and I want, and I, you know, and, and Madison would just say, mom, it was so beautiful because mm-hmm. what you saw was force. Like, mm-hmm. you know how we talk about men being protectors and, and, and providers, but these women, they, they carried a presence of them, which was, I will do what it takes to keep my family alive. Yeah. And there was no meekness, weakness, gentleness, softness, quietness. There was a demand. Yeah. And I think we're surprised by that. Like we think like it almost affronts us, you know, but, but sometimes that's what it takes to survive in a culture that doesn't want you to live. Yeah. And I kind of see Rahab a little like that. Like she's learned, look, you are not going to care for me. I think she's learned that all those gods have not taken care of her. Yeah. And she's like, okay, maybe this. Go ahead, Melissa. I I love that because we, when we spoke before, we, one of the questions that we keep asking is like, is Jesus good for women? And I think like even just imagining Rahab and there was something about Yahweh where she was like, these other gods have not served me. This God, the God who brought this oppressed people out of Egypt is going to be good for someone like me. And I think that's like so beautiful in her story and in what you're describing of like, it's not like this passive, like maybe I can be included here. It's like, no, you are, you are fully invited in and this God is good for you. Even a sense of I'm worthy of this God. Yes. And this God thinks I'm worth it. Yeah. There's, yes. a, there's a, a demand in it, which, wh- wow, right? Like that is not an acceptable approach for women either, right? Um, that doesn't look like humility. That doesn't look like, um, and yet God tells us in the New Testament that this woman is faithful. And then my imagination starts to go. What was it like well, that, to in the Jewish world? We call that midrashing. Yeah, yes. midrash. <laughs> what does it look like to have Rahab join the Israelite community? So fast forward a few years, that you know that Israelites have moved into the Promised Land. Rahab and her family is now a part of the Israel Israelite community. How how does she fit in? culturally to this people group and what questions is she raising around you know the passover dinner table when they're telling the stories of israel what questions is she asking um how is that um high spiritedness showing up in her community life how how is she fitting in with the other women of israel um i just like to imagine that and think about uh, what a gift, honestly, she must have been for the people of Israel as she's asking questions, as she's saying, well, why do you do that? 
why, why do you think that that's what God's like? I don't think that's what God's like. And then she's, because she's drawing on her own story. How is she showing up in the community life of Israel? How are, how are the people of Israel having to make space for her and Mm -hmm. adjust some of the ways that they do things? Because God has already demonstrated, um, the rightfulness of her presence in their community. God has validated her as a member of their community. So what do they have to do to adjust to that? Um, what does that look like in community life? And I, then I want to go another step and say, what does that mean for us as church people? Because we have people like Rahab that come into our church spaces and they shake everything up And how do we respond to that? And maybe we want to push them out because they make us uncomfortable. But I think Rahab teaches us that God's like, nope, this person belongs in your community. And if it makes you feel awkward, maybe that says more about you than it does about a Rahab. Yeah, one of the things I loved about that you brought out in your sermon was that Rahab is excited, is a new convert. Yeah. And, and what that does for the community when there's a new convert. Share a little bit of that with us. <laughs> I think as I was reading her story and just that profound statement of faith that she makes and recognizing that she does become part of the Israelite community, she's like this on fire, new, zealous convert that can't shut up about all the things that she's learning because she's just so enthusiastic. And this this is a hearkening back to my um previous ministry years in evangelism and doing evangelistic youth ministry. And you would have the kid that would show up who would learn about Jesus and would be so ridiculously excited about all the things that they were learning. It would be so full of questions and all of the sweet little church kids who were afraid of asking questions didn't know what to do with that kid. Um, If you've ever been in this environment, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And Um, how that shifts a community because the sweet little church kids realize that some of these questions are not off limits. And the kid that's brand new is forcing everyone to reckon with um, the gospel in ways that they have maybe taken for granted. And so they're so used to, um, well, this is just how you do things. And the new kid is like, but why do we do it like that? And isn't this amazing? Isn't God so good? And everybody else is like, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. So it, it shifts the community. And that's, that's how I picture Rahab coming in like a ball of fire to this sweet little Israelite community. And she's just asking questions and making everybody uncomfortable in some ways. But they have to reckon with the fact that God is real for Rahab too. And what does that do to them? I, I love how you talk about that. Actually, it, to me, it brings... revival in some sense into a community to have new converts. I actually was that. I didn't grow up in the church and I um, got, got saved and literally moved to seminary as a brand new believer. And somebody should have told me just to go to church, but I didn't. I I, got to know this Jesus. And, um, and that's why I went to seminary and I just sat in class. I mean, they would say open up to Philemon. And I thought it was a book that we'd gotten in the bookstore. And so I leaned down on my backpack to see which book that was. I didn't even know it was in the Bible and none of the Bible stories. Zero zip, you know. 
But man, I was like watching this Jesus that I'd said yes to everywhere in the scripture. Like I just was following him around, following him around, following him around. I was getting so freaking excited, you know? <laughs> and I would call my mother-in-law who was a Christian and I'd say, did you know, you know, like most of those things, like Jesus walked on water. Did you know that? Oh my God. And, and my in-laws who've been believers forever started like getting back into the Bible in other ways. And, you know, like, um, and it was just, I think that kind of, uh, and I asked questions like, well, what do you mean you can't yeah. do anything good if you don't have Jesus in you? So this person doesn't ever do good? Like, you know, like, and they'd be like going, well, no, wait. And, and what you realize is you, when you grow up in the church you, or your church D, you know, um, you come, you come away with a lot of teachings that you've never even questioned. Like, right. is it true that God can't produce goodness out of someone who isn't a, a, a Christ follower? Is that true? So, so no one in the universe has ever been good. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden people go, wait, my rote answer that I would give you, I don't think that works. You know what I mean? And so it's so good for us. It stretches um, the community and it, and, yes. and it infuses some excitement into the community and uncomfortability, like you had mentioned. And I love you mentioning, we've got to make space for that and all other kinds of, of, of people that come in that God has said yes, yes to. That yes. we don't, we would never have said yes to, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't have picked the prostitute to be in the line of Jesus. That's not who right. I would have picked. Right. <laughs> Mother Teresa, maybe, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and well, then we have to say, they didn't say stop being a prostitute and then no. you'll be saved. Like, we don't know. She's called a prostitute all the way through. We don't know if she entered that community and just immediately changed her entire life. We don't know. Well, even if she changed her behavior, right? Because even if she changed her behavior of that action, there was a slow process of, of, of shift. You know, yeah. you, you don't just immediately dump everything of your being, mm -hmm. right? It, it's, it's, you, you shed some like discontinuity and continuity. Some things go forward, right? That's, that's process. We all know that's process for the rest of our lives, but mm -hmm. you were going to say something more. Oh, I just think that these are the, the other thing that I, I kept coming back to is this did, this did not happen by coincidence. These women showing up in Jesus's family tree, it's not as though it was an accident that God somehow was sleeping at the wheel and accidentally let these women into the story. Like, I think we have to um, look at why um, God included these particular women um, in this story and why Matthew in his gospel, because this particular genealogy comes from Matthew one that includes these women. And so why did Matthew think it was worth noting that these women were part of Jesus's story? He did not have to include them. No one would be shocked if these women were left off the list because normally women were not included right. in the genealogies, but Matthew put their names in that list. So what is Matthew trying to do by including these women in Jesus's family tree? Um, why does he want to signal us or redirect us to their stories? And what is he trying to tell us about Jesus when he includes them? Um, and there are little hints, I think, little Easter eggs all throughout the Gospel of Matthew um, of what Matthew is trying to do in the way that he's approaching telling Jesus's story. And I think it starts in Matthew one with this genealogy. And Matthew is saying, Jesus is 
the fulfillment of Israel, and Jesus is coming to include all people in God's family, that Jesus is a savior for people of all nations. And he's signaling that at the very beginning by including these women in the story. Which would have been for Jewish people, because Matthew's written to Jewish people, that would have been hard for them to swallow. Yeah. Because they had come become hardened to a bias that they were the people only. Just this tribe right here. Even though actually all throughout scripture, it said something very different, but they couldn't see that. Not that we ever do that. Like <laughs> this part of what the whole story is trying to say to us because we've got bias and we can only see. No, we don't do that today. That was what they did way back when. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's just so good. And and I I love that Matthew, I, I, I hadn't pieced this together, but Matthew is the one that includes the story of the wise men coming from the East to visit Jesus. And Matthew is the one at the end of his gospel that has Jesus standing on a mountain in Galilee, telling his disciples to go make disciples of all people from all nations. So this is part of Matthew's um, directive in the way that he shapes his gospel is that this is part of what his message that he wants us to know about Jesus, that Jesus is for all people. And I mean, it doesn't get more all people than Rahab. So I think that's why um, she makes the list, which is so great. So I'm going to take us because I, 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 I know I probably shouldn't bounce here, but I'm going to, because why not? Um, (laughs) Who are we excluding? that maybe God is including. I mean, seriously, who do you see as people groups right now that were specific people that the church of Christ in America is excluding that perhaps we're missing Yeah, because we have a certain image of what we think the church looks like and who's, who godly people look like. And I'm just curious, who do you think the people groups Mm -hmm. are today in America? And when you answer this, this is not you making a statement of whether you agree they should be included or not included, blah, 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 blah. You're just saying, here, here's, here's, this is where it's still happening, people. This is what's still happening. We're still yeah. grappling as a body of Christ with how do we handle the Rahabs of today and how we perceive them. I mean, we're so good at drawing lines. And I think sometimes those lines are hidden. So I'm just going to be a straight shooter. I think like... Um, LGBT, LGBTQ people. I think we have said you don't belong here. I think, um, you know, it depends on what, what kind of church you're in, but I think a lot of times in my area of the world, um, like everybody seems to be from the same socioeconomic group. Like when you look around your church circle, everybody seems to be from the same strata, um, And I think we have to ask ourselves, right, who's missing from this table? Who's who's not here? Um, I think like our, like in terms of um, different ethnic groups, I think that again, we have separated ourselves out Um, culturally. We have chosen a very narrow section, cross section of culture and said it has to look like this. Um, I would say even like when it comes to um, 
people that are we would say are obvious sinners in terms of their sexuality, in terms of substances, in terms of like um, all kinds of backstory, history, mental health issues, um, they make us uncomfortable. And so we don't know how to say it doesn't feel like family. And so we kind of go into this autoimmune, like push people out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it's in all of our families. What are we talking about? Right. Right. And it doesn't look like what we should have in the church family. Yes. In our biological families, it's actually happening. All of those things you named. <laughs> and I would say it's happening in our church families too, whether we whether we recognize it or not. So some of these things are already going on. It's just, we have such a pressure of conformity within our churches. Um, and so even people who recognize, I'm a little bit Rahab. Like, I think there are people in our churches who are going, I'm a little bit Rahab, but I'm going to submerge that deep when I walk into this community because I'm supposed to look like something else. Yeah, I had a friend recently who's a pastor and he told me their church kind of gets looked down on in their community because they're the church where uh, people will show up hungover and that they're not like deep in the gospel. You know, they don't have this like deep discipleship. And I was like, I want to be the church where people show up hungover, like not, <laughs> not, don't misunderstand me, but you know, like I want to be the place where people are like, like what you described Jackie of like, I, I have met this Jesus and I just got to like find him and figure it out. And I maybe don't have all these other pieces figure it out. And, and there we're safe enough for them to show up like that. That's, that's the place that I want to be. Yeah, because that's exactly how Rahab showed up, right? I mean, I, I think about her process. It's it's interesting. Um, let's see if I can find it. But, you know, I, I where is it that she got taken? Um, I got it, I've got it in my notes somewhere here. Okay, I got it. So, you know, after the, the wall falls down and, and they, you know, save Rahab and her family, um, it they take her to an outside camp for purification. Mm-hmm. We read this in Numbers 5 in Deuteronomy 23 that, you know, like uh, the law was that anybody was considered out, uh, uh, impure, which she would because she was a Canaanite, she was a prostitute, she was female, she had periods, you know, like, oh my God, she's a mess. She <laughs> lies, you know? And, and so that she would have been taken to a, an outside camp for a period of time and for purification before she could be brought into the community, which is very interesting, right? And I get that because it's 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 a way of like uh, demonstrating that God is holy and that people are being um, taught through senses that that they are set apart for something different than what was happening before. But she didn't instantaneously change, right? Because godliness is a gradual process. Um, but I love what Oren McManus says about her going into that community. She said, oh, let's see, Oren McManus is one of my favorite preachers, but he said, when we become part of God's people, and interact with God's word, God does something. He recreates what he created and we become free to be who he created us to be. But we have to give people space to do, let God do that. Yeah. And the interesting thing today is, you know, for all of you out there listening who feel like you're a Rahab and hey, that was my story, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I've got a devil tattoo on my hip to prove it. Um, you know, the thing is, in the New Testament, we don't have any outside the camps anymore. 
that doesn't exist. You know, we read in Hebrews where the, the, the curtain is split. We now can boldly come before the throne. You know, there are no purification camps anymore. And so some of you out there may be keeping yourself outside the camp because you're so afraid of how when you get inside a church, you're treated so odd. Yeah. And I would say Ray, read Rahab's story. Find courage from her. Mm. Let, let her bravery seep into you. And let her tell you, you don't have to be different. You can be you and still be called faithful. And that God has time for you to be amongst his people and amongst his word to like work it all out, you know, for the rest of your life. Um, and she's got, she's got, she's got good stuff to say to us. Yeah. Could we just say amen after that? <laughs> oh, good. All right. One last thought, ladies. One last thought before we say goodbye. Hey, let me ask I, you. Yeah. I got. A, I got a question. You know, someday we're going to hang out with these people. Mm. Um, let's say she's a granny by now, and she's in a rocking chair, and I don't know what she's eating because I don't know what they ate during that time frame. But um, you get to like pull up next to her. What would you like to thank her for? I would like to thank her for not making herself small and accommodating, um, that she saw God's goodness and went after it. I'm thankful for that. And I also have this image in my head of Jesus as a kid growing up and hearing about the, his, his forebears and having a sense of pride that Rahab was in the list. Mm. And that just gives me so much joy to think about Jesus um, knowing these stories of the different people that are in his family line and being able to pick out Rahab and having a sense of not shame or hiding the fact that she's part of his story, um, but celebrating who she was and that she is part of his history. And that, I think that's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. What about you, Melissa? I think for me, it's that she brought her whole self and um, didn't ever let the fact that she, that, that men were on top of her and, and, you know, taking away her, that she was dependent and to, she never gave into that and said, okay, then I'm just going to like passively wait. And, and she still, she, that was her, her lived reality. Um, but she didn't let that chip it chip away at her full self. And when she had moments, she still stepped into those moments fully and didn't, um, didn't wait for someone else to tell her to do that. And, I think that's just such a such a powerful example because when your reality it gets your your personhood gets chipped away and chipped away, it becomes harder and harder to step into those moments and to hold on to the fullness of yourself. And so I, I just I would thank her for that role model right there. Yeah. That woman had grit. Mm. Yeah. She had grit. Um I think if I were to sit in a rocking chair with her, I would want to thank her for teaching me how when I want to see that she's a prostitute, 
that God sees possibility. Mm-hmm. And to be reminded that when I see people that I think are so far gone and God could never, ever redeem them and their stories, that what I'm seeing is not what God is seeing. Mm-hmm. And so I need, I need to be reminded of that because sometimes I can get done with the waiting, you know, mm. yeah, the people particularly that I love. Mm. And, um, and she teaches me, don't stop waiting, no matter what mm. it looks like, no matter how far gone it looks, God's a God of possibilities. So, all right, ladies, thank you. Next week, who are we talking about? <laughs> Ruth or no Bathsheba? Bathsheba. Okay. So what's the little golden tease for Bathsheba? Boy, well, Bathsheba, she's a little trickier than our other women because whereas we've seen these other women centered in their stories, Bathsheba really isn't. She's a picture of somebody who didn't have a lot of agency uh, and is pitted against the most powerful man in um, in their in their whole, their world right there. And so, um, her story is a little a little harder to share a little um, more vulnerable about the reality that women face. Um, I think there's a chance to, we get to redeem her a little bit though. She's kind of one of the most, the way she's been taught has been pretty unfair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been mistaught. Yes. Yeah. Because we, we love David and um, I don't think David would like how, how her story has been taught either. So I'm um, really excited, really excited about this and, one. And I think about the church too movement and the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been so many powerful men like Harry Weinstein, who, you know, many of those women felt like they had no um, choice mm-hmm. um, because their life career was based on how this man was going to handle them. And this story, I think, speaks a lot to that, that story also, which is very still happening today, you know, all yeah. over the place. So it's a very relevant story. It's a very relevant story on so many levels, not just in America, but all over the globe, all over the globe. So she has a lot to say to us. I can't wait to hear it. So thank you very much, Laura and Melissa. We are so grateful for having you here. Thank you for listening in. I hope you guys learned something, gleaned something, but more than anything, I hope you smell and taste that God is good. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.